0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for the clarity of your Word. We thank you that as we open your Word, it really is a light unto our feet, a light unto our path, and it speaks so clearly to all the issues that we might want to bring to it. And so we pray, Lord, as we open your word tonight, as we speak about a difficult topic, we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us, uh, open our eyes, open our hearts, Lord, to understand your word. We pray that your spirit would move amongst us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are super thankful you guys are here. Someday we'll be in a nice, warm place remembering how this was. Tonight is a serious topic. Last Friday was the 48th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, which is the Supreme Court decision that legalized abortion on demand in the U.S. And so once in a while, we don't do it every single year, but once in a while we want to take up this topic and look at what the scripture says about the sanctity of all human life, the value of all human life, that all human beings are valuable and deserve our protection. And the biblical warrant for that is in Proverbs 31, verse 8. It says, speak up for those who have no voice, for the for the justice of all the dispossessed, speak up, judge righteously, and defend the cause of the oppressed and the needy. We as Christians have a responsibility to speak up for the voiceless and those who have no power. And if we think about who is are the ones in our community that have the least voice and the least power, it'd be the unborn. And so tonight we're going to talk about how we can speak out for them. And there's a bunch of ways we could do this. You know, you can think immediately about political action and legislation, but there's also a role that we all have in having conversations with people to try to affect, by God's power, heart change in our community. There's also acts of compassion. We have a friend of ours, Jeanette Chun, who runs Birth Choice in our area that supplies all sorts of needs for women that face abortion but didn't decide to do that. Her ministry will supply food and clothing and all kinds of help, and so that's something you guys could totally get involved in, Birth Choice. Adoption is another one. So there's a lot of different layers of how we are to help with this uh, particular issue in in our community. Political action and legislation are important. I think I'm the type that tends to say, yeah, but we need heart change. Only national heart change is going to change things. And I do believe that. But legislation is also important, too. You've heard people say you can't legislate morality. But listen to Martin Luther King on that. He said, it may be true that morality cannot be legislated, but behavior can be regulated. It may be true that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. It may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can restrain him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important also. And so it's a multi-pronged thing, right? It's, it's political action, legislation. But tonight we're going to talk about the heart change part, because that's something we could all have a part in, in conversations with people in our community. And I'm not just talking to other Christians. Even non-Christians can understand the case for pro-life. Thankfully, as you guys have probably heard, abortion numbers are on decline. But there's still currently about 600,000 abortions in the United States every year. And so it's rampant. And we want to be a part, guys, of a national heart change on this issue. And this could totally happen. I think a lot of times we think that things only have to get worse and worse. That's not true. I mean, you think about the cause of American slavery. There was a time when many people, even people we respect greatly, believed it was totally reasonable to enslave other human beings. And now our nation looks back on that and thinks, how could we ever have thought that? That could happen on this issue too, guys. And we can all be a part of that. My prayer is that we'll live to see our culture repent of this evil and think, how did we ever do this? How did we ever think this was okay? And just to make the point a little bit stronger, if that happens in our lifetime, what will you tell your grandkids about how you were involved in protecting the unborn? You know, what will you tell them about how you were involved in protecting the unborn? Christians have affected heart change a lot of times. We have a history of this. In the 1st century, in 2nd century, and 3rd century, Christians were involved in uh, changing the heart of the Roman Empire towards things like infanticide. That was a rampant thing, but Christians were the ones that changed the heart there. The English Christians changed the British Empire's view of slavery in the, in the 19th century. And so this is something that can happen. We can be a part of a national heart change. And so part of what I want to do in this, te- in this passage is I want to, we're going to talk about the image of God in the beginning, then we're going to talk about like how we can have conversations about this, and then we're going to look at how Jesus connects to all this. But before I start, one of the things I want to be mindful of is in a group this size, it is very likely we have people in our body that have either had abortions or have encouraged somebody to have one. And the reason I say that is about one in four women before the age of 45 will have an abortion. So, this is very common. And I think you guys need to remember this when you're talking about this to other Christians. Don't assume that the other Christians you're talking about have not already done this. Okay? This is not an us them thing. This is something that's a cultural thing. And this is something that's common. And I just want to say if that's you, either you, you had one or you consented to one or you encouraged one, I just want you to, to hear that if you've repented of that sin, I want to in no way trouble your conscience tonight. Um, If you've repented of that sin and trusted in Jesus, you are clean. You're forgiven. Nothing I say should make you feel otherwise. Our Savior's death on the cross has forever cleansed you of that sin. You bear it no more. He bore it away on the cross. But I think that if you are in that situation or if you have that past, you would deeply want me to expose some of the lies that make that seem like a very reasonable moral choice. Wouldn't you? be a really important thing. I would think you would want me to unpack the truth about this in such a way that others would not be lured into this temptation. You would want me to equip others to, to have the kind of conversations that could have prevented it in your life. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to look at what makes all human beings valuable, worthy of protection. We're going to look at how we know that the unborn are human beings. And then we're going to look at how Jesus relates to all this. First, what makes all human beings valuable? Um, Our secular culture is quick to affirm the dignity and rights of every human being, no matter what their race, age, sex, or disabilities. And that's an awesome thing, okay? Our culture agrees with us on that, which is a beautiful thing. But if you ask them why, they might not have very good reasons for it. Because it turns out that if you divorce your you know, worldview from the Christian worldview, you actually don't have a good reason to give dignity and rights to every human being, no matter who they are. But our culture still does believe that, even though they don't have good reasons for it, which we should be super thankful for. And we can meet them on that level. The Hebrew scriptures though, guys, give the best possible foundation for believing that every human being deserves dignity and rights. And we can see it right from the first chapter. Take a look at Genesis 1. In Genesis one twenty six, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and everything that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It's an awesome story. You guys are just so familiar with it, you don't realize how awesome it is. So Genesis 1 tells us the beginning of this universe was a happy God that lived eternally existent in a triune relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that he didn't create this place out of need. He created this place out of an overflow of joy that he had within the persons of the Trinity. Yeah. Persons of the Trinity lived in a relationship of love and joy from all eternity, and like a fountain that's got too much water in it, they overflowed in creating this world. Human beings though are his most special creation. He loves human beings the most. Um, we can see that in in Genesis two how he loves them. It says in this passage that he created them in his image it 's a really cool idea it 's a really cool truth because in ancient times kings would produce little images of themselves like statues or some sort of signs and put them all over their kingdom. And the idea was, now you know who runs this place. Now you know who rules this place. So the creator of this world, instead of creating little you know, models of himself, he created us He created us to be the little statues, the little images of him. And he wants them all over the place. You notice he keeps saying, be fruitful and multiply. He wants as many of these images of himself all over. And so we're these living images, these living pictures of what God is like and he wants the earth full of them. We're we're designed to be like little mirrors on a 45 degree angle where God's glory reflects down on us and out into the world. That people would look at our lives, all of us, and they would know that there's a good and gracious and loving God that rules this place because look at his people, right? That's what he's designed us to be, to image him. It says in this text both male and female. Is an interesting thing. Amongst ancient religions, it actually was not a a common thing or even a thing at all that all people are made in God's image. They would have thought of perhaps one important person, perhaps, you know, the king or the pharaoh or whatever was made in God's image, but all the regular people weren't. The interesting thing in the Hebrew scriptures here in chapter one is that all people are made in God's image, not just the powerful, but the, the weak, not just the male, but the female, everyone made in God's image. And what we have in this text, guys, is an amazing statement that in in one statement exposes the lies of racism, exposes the lies of sexism, exposes the lies of ageism or ableism, that only people that don't have disabilities are somehow valuable. It's exposed right from the first chapter of Scripture, that all people are equal because they're made in God's image. All people have worth and dignity and rights because they're made in God's image. If you look at Isaiah 43, 6... He says this about how we're to image him, how we're to reflect his glory out into the world. It says this, I will say to the north, give up. And I will say to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and whom I've made. Notice something else in that passage. He calls human beings, his sons and his daughters. And so not only are we made in God's image, but this is something personal. He wants a relationship with human beings. He created us to know him and love him, and for us to be able to feel his love and to know him. Um, you can tell that in Genesis 2, because he creates these image bearers, and then what does he do? He doesn't leave them alone, right? In Genesis 2, he comes down and he's messing with them all the time. He wants to be with them. He wants to teach them things. He wants to show them things. You know, he handmakes Eve from Adam. He's very involved because he, he's got this fatherly love for human beings, What's also awesome is in Genesis 3, when they sin, he doesn't immediately just destroy them, right? He covers their sin and he promises a savior. You guys realize it would have been a lot cheaper just to make new humans, but he didn't because humans aren't disposable to God and he's willing to take great costs to have them back. So all human beings are valuable to God and he loves them and he fiercely protects them. We see that in Genesis 9, verse 5, it says, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From, from every beast, I will require it, and from man. For from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood will be shed. For God made man in his image. Murder is wrong, killing other human beings, innocent human beings is wrong. Because they're made in God's image, God loves and values them above his whole creation. And I think our culture can meet us here. Right? Our culture can meet us here in recognizing that it's wrong to kill innocent human beings. They may not know why, but they know that it's wrong. Here we see why it's wrong, because we're made in God's image, and he loves and he cares for human beings. We're valuable because he says we're valuable. Now, how does this relate to the unborn? I believe that we can all make a very reasonable case to anyone in our culture that killing the unborn is wrong. And here's how it goes. Three points. It's wrong to kill innocent human beings, point one. The unborn are innocent human beings, point three. Therefore, it is wrong to kill the unborn. It's pretty simple, right? It's wrong to kill innocent human beings. The unborn are innocent human beings. Therefore, killing them is wrong. I'm going to amazingly work in this next section on the second point. Okay, we can all agree that killing innocent human beings is wrong, but do we all agree that the unborn are innocent human beings? So we're going to look at that case. And the reason why I'm doing this, I want to equip you guys, because if you're in a conversation with somebody and they start talking about abortion and they start talking about these things, you want to be equipped to make a, a reasonable, careful, calm, rational, persuasive case. And it's actually not very hard to make. So are the unborn human beings... In all of your conversations about this issue of abortion, you need to ask one simple question. What is the unborn? Okay, It's a really important question, and we kind of move on from that. They say, well, what about a woman that's in this situation? Or what about that situation? Or we don't want the government involved in this and that. we got to back up, and we got to go. But what is it? What is the unborn? For you parents, you're working out in the yard. Your kid comes up behind you and says, can I kill this? What's the first thing you ask? What is it? Okay, That's the most important question. Most important question is what is it? When you discuss abortion, you're going to be confronted with all kinds of objections. And these objections are going to seem very persuasive, but you have to keep coming back to what is the unborn? Because if the unborn is a human being, then no justification for abortion is, is sufficient. If the unborn is not a human being, no justification for abortion is needed. Okay, Do whatever you want with it if it's not human. But if it's human, then we need to protect it. In the same way that, you know, no justification for slavery is adequate if the slave's a human, right? It's the same kind of thing. One way to keep steering the conversation back, and this is something I think I got from Greg Kokel, is um, trotting out the toddler, okay? There's a a tactic of trotting out the toddler. So it works this way. When you're talking with somebody about abortion, and they give you these justifications, the, the thing you can bring people back to again and again is, would that same objection be valid if we were talking about a toddler, okay? So I'll give you some examples, but that's called trotting out the toddler. And what it does is it keeps on bringing the conversation back to what is the unborn? That's the most important question. So, for example, when someone says, I don't think anyone has the right to force their views on others, or the government shouldn't be allowed to control my choice, your response could be something like, would you say the same thing if we were talking about killing a toddler? And, of course, it's like, oh, wait, no, the government can't have control on that. And, oh, wait, you could be able to force your view, right? You see how it brings it back to the core issue, which is what is it? Or somebody might say, I'm not ready to have a child right now. I can't afford a child right now. I need to finish school. Would any of those justify taking the life of a toddler? Okay? And, of course, we immediately go, oh, of course not, right? Because that's bringing it back again to what is the unborn? Or somebody might say, well, I'm worried the child won't find a good home. Or I don't want the child to have to deal with some sort of severe disability like Down syndrome or something even more severe than that. You bring it back to say, well, would that be a good justification also for taking the life of the toddler? I'm like, well, no, of course not, right? And Because none of those reasons are valid reasons for abortion unless we assume that the unborn aren't human. Okay, All of those things can only be valid. If the unborn aren't human, the unborn are human beings, then those things aren't valid. So you make it clear by bringing it back. So trot out the toddler. It helps in hard situations, too. You have a very difficult situation where somebody says, well, what about cases of the life of the mother? The important thing to do here before you get into all that, and I'm not going to make rulings on all kinds of things tonight, but... The important thing when making that decision is you do need to treat both of them as valuable human beings, right? You got to start with the standpoint of we have two valuable human beings, what do we do now? One of the most common life of the mother issues would be an ectopic pregnancy. It's actually one of the easier ones to talk about. This is where the pregnancy is not in the uterus. So it's in the fallopian tube somewhere else, but it's not in the uterus. Um, That pregnancy can't survive. So when you're making the decision on that, you're making the decision between two valuable lives. The one cannot survive no matter what you do. The other one will only survive if you took the life of the unborn there. And so you make the choice to save the one life you can and lose the one life you can't save. Okay, But notice we didn't just say it. Like we had an intuition what to do. We need to back up and go like, yeah, but what is the unborn before you make that decision? So what is the unborn? This is actually not a mystery. People make it real mysterious. They're like, well, we don't know when life begins. We don't know in personhood. When does the soul come in? You know, there's all these kind of like hand-waving and confusion. Okay. From the earliest stages, the unborn are distinct living human beings, okay? Abortion ends the life of a living human being. First, they're distinct. The unborn are distinct from the mother. Oftentimes you hear things about, you know, women should have a right to do what they want with their own bodies or to make their own healthcare decisions. But the unborn are not a part of the woman's body, okay? Just scientifically, the unborn are not a part of the woman's body. This is easily proven. If you took a sample From the unborn, if you took uh, some DNA and you took some DNA of the mother and you sent them to the lab and you asked, is this a part of the other one's body? They would say no, right? They would say, actually, no, these are from two different bodies, but we can tell from it it's got half the DNA from the one, so this must be the mother and the child, but they've come from two different bodies, okay? So the the unborn are distinct. The unborn are living, okay? This is also not hard, okay? Because a lot of people, we don't know when life begins. We know the unborn is alive. Okay? We know because the unborn is living. By the way, the reason I'm using the unborn, it's a neutral term. Feel free to use whatever you want, but I'm just using a very neutral term. I know it's kind of an awkward term. The unborn are living. They possess all the signs of life. Coordinated functioning of the whole, metabolism, growth, and even response to stimuli. The unborn are living. It's it's really straightforward. There's metabolism, growth, there's eventually response to stimuli. The unborn are human. This is also very clear, okay? You could solve this really easily, same way with DNA. Take a DNA sample, send it to the lab, don't tell them where you got it, say, what is this? Say, this is human, okay, this is a human being. That should not be surprising because human beings have human offspring, right? That's what's going on here. At no point in prenatal development were you something other than human. It wasn't like humans procreated, there was a stage you weren't a human and they became a human. Like all the way along, we could totally like scientifically disprove you're human, okay? So the unborn are distinct living human beings. We have a hard time seeing this because the unborn look different than us, right? They are in a different location than us. They, are, they don't have some of the same abilities we have, right? And that's where something comes into play that's really helpful, and I think you could use this, so memorize this, the SLED test. Okay, SLED is an acronym. It's size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency, And those four things are differences between us and the unborn, but they don't make the unborn less than human. And I'm going to go through those, okay? First one, size. Size does not determine whether one is human or not. The unborn are a lot smaller than us, but that doesn't make them less human or make them have less rights. We don't afford more rights to larger people than smaller people, right? You don't have rights based on your size, okay? Size doesn't affect how human you are. Level of development. R- level of development does not make one more or less human. The unborn are at a very early stage of development, but that doesn't put them outside of the human family. We don't consider a teenager more human than an infant. That's an awkward example. We might consider them less human, perhaps. But we don't consider them more human. Not mine, but you know, maybe yours. We don't consider a middle-aged person less human than an elderly person, right? There's different stages of development, but they're the same thing. They're, they're human beings. An embryo is an immature human, just like an infant is an immature human, but not less than human. They are a whole human from the beginning at different stages of development. Some people point to the unborn's lack of self-awareness, you know, that because the unborn aren't self-aware, that maybe they aren't human, they aren't fully human like us. But infants are probably also not self-aware. Okay, A lot of the arguments you might make for making it okay to, to practice abortion would also make it okay for infanticide. The, the infant probably isn't self-aware either. And the self-awareness thing is kind of interesting because I'm not self-aware when I'm sleeping either. And it's not right to kill me because I'm not self-aware. Because at some point I will become self-aware in the morning, right? The child's the same way. They are going to become self-aware if you don't kill them, right? Just like you, if you don't kill me in my sleep, I'll become self-aware. Environment, so we have size, level of development, environment. Okay, a lot is made in abortion rights things about environment. That somehow, baby inside, not a human, baby outside, human. That somehow passing the cervix, it gives humanity to them, makes them a human being. This isn't particularly logical. We are not more or less human based on our environment. There are not certain places you could put me and then I don't become a human, but then I'm a human later, okay? So environment, does it makes no meaningful difference. We don't gain or lose our status as humans based on our location. In fact, John Calvin had this amazing statement about the environment. He said this, For the fetus, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being. It is a monstrous crime to rob it of the life that has not begun to enjoy. Listen to this; this is amazing. He says, "If it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in the field, because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge, it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb." Isn't that powerful. That like if it's worse to kill you in your home because that should be a secure place, it should be even more. So environment doesn't determine whether you're human or not. Degree of dependency. We're not more or less human based on our degree of dependency. It's true that the unborn, a lot of their gestation cannot survive outside, although more and more we can help them to survive outside earlier. But their degree of dependency does not affect whether they're human or not. And we know that this is the case. I mean, we all know people that are dependent on dialysis or insulin, or they will not survive. And we don't consider them less human because they need help to stay alive. The unborn is definitely extremely dependent And yet still human. So degree of dependency doesn't affect it either. Now, remember the logic. It is wrong to kill innocent human beings. The unborn are innocent human beings. Therefore, it is wrong to kill them. Okay. And you can see how you you can make that three point case and you could work on that second point. You're actually on incredibly solid ground. And the reason why I want to say it this way is because this is not a religious issue. This is a human rights issue. And this is something that all the facts are available out in the public square. These are all things that you could bring. And you could bring these in a way that's cool and rational and calm and one point at a time and devastatingly clear, right? That's what's amazing about this is that the case can be made. One thing we're prone to think determines human value also is their abilities. A lot of times they point to things they can't do, thinking like, well, they must not be human because they aren't self-aware, they can't do some other things. But guys, what's really amazing about scripture is scripture does not say we're valuable based on what we can do, but based on what we are. You're valuable not based on what you can do to God, but what you are. There are people that are so disabled that they can't do much more than exist, but their very existence is valuable to God. Their very existence is valuable to God loves and treasures people simply because they're human beings made in his image. Our dignity and our rights come not from our usefulness to one another, but from the value that God gives us. And he knew us in every stage of development. Now we're going to go back to like scriptural stuff, but check this out. Psalm 139 is beautiful. Verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are all your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when there were none yet. What's amazing about that passage is that he's saying that God knew him in his mother's womb. That God had a relationship with us before we could know him. Even before we knew him, he knew us. And notice all the way through that passage that he says, my body, you formed me, that he was himself at that time. And God knew him, even though he couldn't know God yet. So how does this all relate to Jesus? In many ways. But in Jesus, we see that God the Son became a distinct living human being, the only truly innocent one. Isn't that amazing? In God the Son, we see that God became a distinct living human being the only truly innocent one. Guys, nothing shows the value of human beings more than God became one of us. That God would so love human beings that he would become one of us. And not only did he become one of us, but God joined the lowest levels of the human social hierarchy, right? Philippians 2 says that he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In so doing, Jesus showed the incredible value of all human life right? Not just the powerful, not just certain, you know, people that we look to that we, we would think were more valuable, that even the lowest of society have incredible value to God, that we're all equal. God the Son, think about this, became an embryo, okay? God the Son became an embryo. He identified with the unborn in the womb by becoming one of them. Have you really thought about that? He became one of them. And guys, at every stage, his worth was unaffected by his size, his level of development, his environment, or his degree of dependency. At every stage, he was fully God and fully human. God the Son became this distinct living human being to do something that we've all failed to do, to rightly reflect the image of God. Because remember, we're made to be like those 45 degree mirrors that are, that are reflecting the glory and worth of God that people would look at humans and they would think, man, God must be good. He must be wise. He must be amazing because look at these humans. But what's happened is that we've marred the image of God, right? One of the most common critiques, and most common reasons for people to not believe in God is the action of human beings. You know, we, we don't see God as beautiful and glorious the way we ought to because we're not imaging him as we should. But Jesus came as the perfect image of God. In Colossians 1.15, it says he is the image of the invisible God. So much so, guys, that to look at Jesus, you can see exactly what God is like. Jesus is not just like the happier side of God. Jesus is exactly what God is like. He is the express image. He images him perfectly. That's what Jesus came to do. We've all failed to do that very thing. Romans 3 says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6 says that the wages of sin is death, that we failed to do the very thing we were made for. And the penalty for that is separation from God. Separation from the one that we were created to to enjoy, the one we were created to know and feel the warmth of his love for us on us. We'd be separated because of our sin, but God loved human beings so much that he became a man who is the perfect image bearer and became our perfect sin bearer on the cross. So Jesus both perfect image bearer and perfect sin bearer on the cross. Guys, there's no sin in this, I always say in this room, we're not really in a room. There's no sin in this gathering that is stronger than the blood of Jesus. There's no sin that is stronger than his perfect life and death in your place. Even the taking of an innocent human life. Because if we're honest, we were all a part of taking the most precious life ever, the life of Jesus, the truly innocent one. We all had a part in that. But the good news is if you trust Jesus tonight, he will remove your sin, he will restore your relationship with God, and then he will cause you to more and more properly reflect God in the world. That by being connected to God, Colossians 1 says that we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. And that's what we celebrate tonight in the Lord's Supper. If that's your hope, we ask you to take the Lord's Supper with us as we hold this physical bread. We remember that Jesus had a true physical body, a body which he used to perfectly reflect God, a body that as this bread will be broken in our teeth was broken for us, a body which bled on the cross for our sins. And I just want you to meditate on the fact, oh, how he loves and values you. Oh, how he loves and values you, that he would do that for you. As we eat the bread and we drink the cup, We also think about how God the Son now lives in us by the Holy Spirit. As you take this bread in and you take this cup in, it's a reminder that Christ is in you by the Holy Spirit and that he is more and more causing you to reflect the beauty and the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, please feed us in the Lord's Supper. Fill us, illuminate us for the glory and the name of your Son, Jesus. If that's your hope, let's take it together. First, we'll take the bread. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you to preserve you body and soul unto everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Let's take the bread together. Let's take the cup. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you to preserve you body and soul unto everlasting life. Drink this and remember that Christ's blood was shed for you and be thankful. Let's take it together. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much that you are far better than we ever imagined. You love us more than we can fathom. We pray, Lord, that as we worship now, that we would just reflect that love back to you. Some little portion of it. Lord, we thank you. We worship you. We pray that as we go out into the world that that we would reflect you more. Fill us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.